Hello everyone, my name is Vlad. I am your host today for the second episode of our EBT podcast. Today I am honored to have uh, as a guest uh, Richie from Be More Nutrition. Hello Richie, thank you again for accepting my invitation and uh, I want to ask you to present yourself and to tell uh, our followers more about uh, your passion, your interest and uh, how, uh, how did you end up in the fitness and in the, in the nutrition uh, niche? Sure. Uh, well, first off, Vlad, thanks very much for having me. Um, it's an absolute uh, honor and a pleasure to be, be speaking with you today. Um, so yeah, my name is Richie Kerwin and I am a nutritionist and a nutrition researcher at Liverpool John Moores University. And uh, I suppose to, I'm also a nutrition coach as well. And I suppose, how did I get into the whole nutrition niche? Um, I, I think I got into it in a similar way that a lot of people uh, got into nutrition. And that is um, because I wanted to apply it to myself initially. Uh, and I used to be overweight as a teenager. And I, I suppose I got into, I uh, into exercise science and nutrition. And I just decided... That was something that I'd uh, I'd really like to to learn more about, and it took me a few years uh, to finally uh, focus and specialize in nutrition. But that's exactly what I'm doing now. It sounds great, and uh, uh, I really can't believe that you are overweight, as I've seen your photos and you look very fit. I was so uh, we're talking that, about a, a very very long time ago. I'm not I'm not going to say how long ago because I'll I'll give away my age. But um, yeah, this is when I when I was a kid, and I suppose when we are children, um, our experiences as children can really really shape uh, the way we take on different information. And um, it was a big uh, reason for why I got into nutrition, and I'm glad it, it happened because um, it kind of led me to uh, a healthier lifestyle overall. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, your transformation uh, actually presents also some of your uh, knowledge because if you wouldn't know how to apply them, then you couldn't have been in such a great shape now. So congratulations that's, uh... for... <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations for that. Um, uh, so basically, you, you started with nutrition and uh, afterwards it was fitness or did you just combine them both and uh, learn about them in the same time? Well, uh, when I started learning initially, um, and that was by myself before any formal education, I, I learned about both about exercise and about nutrition. But nutrition was always something that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I suppose it's because it's something that we apply every day of our lives. Uh, you always eat, have to eat something. So it's, it's always something that we can apply. Um, but from a, an academic perspective, I actually started with a general science degree and I specialized in microbiology because, and again, this kind of gives away my age, um, uh, at the time when I was going into university, uh, becoming a nutritionist wasn't considered a viable or a, an appropriate career option. So I was told to try general science instead, encouraged to do that. Um, but eventually I just realized I love talking about nutrition and learning about nutrition so much that I just needed to... Uh, to do it um, more academically. So I did my master's degree in nutrition at the University of Barcelona, um, and that was a few years back. And then I started working as a nutrition coach, and I still realized you know, that wasn't enough. I wanted a little bit more. Uh, I wanted to focus more on the research um, as well. And that's what took me to do my uh, PhD studies in nutrition here in Liverpool. Uh, as a fun fact, I'm a very big fan of uh, the Liverpool football team. So I'm, I'm a little <laughs> bit jealous that you are there right now and uh, they won the league. But uh, coming back to our initial talk, um, I would like to ask you, uh, what are you studying right now? What, what are your interests in, uh, in uh, nutrition right now? Sure. Uh I suppose my, my degree is, is quite special because when I was looking for a PhD, uh, I knew it was really, really important to be doing something that I was passionate about. And when I found the, the title of the PhD that I'm currently doing, it was, um, it was almost like looking at something that was made specifically for me. Uh, it, was, it was that good. So uh, my, uh, <laughs> the original title was quite a, a mouthful. I, I'll try and remember it. It was uh, the... Uh, a high-protein Mediterranean diet and resistance exercise for the amelioration of cardiometabolic risk factors in um, 
uh, cardiac rehab patients with sarcopenic obesity, which is not particularly easy to remember. But it, the, just to kind of to give an idea of what it encompasses, we're talking about Mediterranean diet, which is something that I, I fell in love with when I did my, uh, my master's degree in the University of Barcelona, um, obviously because Barcelona is a big research center for uh, the Mediterranean diet. So I, I, I often say that we were um, brainwashed into uh, really, really liking the, the Mediterranean diet. Um, it focuses on resistance exercise, which I think is something incredibly important for health, um, long-term health uh, in general. Uh, it focuses on higher protein diets. Again, something I'm very, very interested in from a body composition perspective and from a muscle maintenance perspective. Um, and it was working uh, on a research area, which is cardiometabolic disease. So cardiovascular disease, things like heart disease, diabetes, again, areas that I'm very interested in because um, there are conditions that are just becoming more and more prevalent um, in the worlds that we are in today, just due to a number of factors. So it was all of these things coming together that, that really got me interested in this uh, research. And that's I'm very lucky to be doing it. All, the, all those diseases that you mentioned, I think one of the most uh, important factors that uh, can lead to them is uh, obesity. And uh, obesity, as I've seen, it's very prevalent these days, which is kind of sad because we, in my opinion, we have a supermarket full of healthy choices, but we still, uh, as a, a, the human race, make uh, poor choices and we just don't care about the the aging process uh, i don't know i i just feel like young people feel they will never get old and they just do what they want they don't care what they eat and they don't exercise they don't prepare their body in a in a certain way and uh, as you said in your uh, in your original name of your phd uh, you've mentioned sarcopenia if i'm correct that's right uh, uh, can you define a little bit this term as uh, maybe some of our followers really don't understand the word and maybe as you said uh, that this is one of your main interests uh, maybe present a little bit more generalities sure um so yeah sarcopenia while a lot of people would probably not be familiar with the term uh, i think many people are actually familiar with what it is and what sarcopenia is is it's the age-associated loss of muscle mass. So basically, as we get older, um, we lose muscle gradually over time. And I, I think a lot of people will be familiar with this because uh, you know they, they might think of um, you know their parents or their grandparents. And looking at their parents and grandparents over time, you know we often say that as people get older, they seem to to shrink a little bit um, and they they seem to get a little bit weaker. And that is a perfect example of sarcopenia. Um, and I suppose one of the reasons people don't hear about it a lot is because it was only classified as a, an actual, um, officially classified as a disease in 2017. So very, very recently. Um, and what that means is when it's classified officially as a disease is there's going to be more research efforts into, into looking at it, investigating it, and it'll be taken more seriously. Um, and hopefully in this conversation, we'll, we'll just talk about how important uh, sarcopenia is from a health perspective and from a public health perspective. So if uh, you just mentioned that in uh, 2017, it was recognized as a disease. Uh, I'm asking you, do you consider oh. that this disease uh, can be curable or should it be uh, prevented? What's, uh, what's easier or um, what's uh, more uh, palpable? Well, so I, I will always say that uh, prevention is, is, is easier or better than cure. Um, and, and the same goes for sarcopenia. And so one of the things about sarcopenia is that it, it does have some significant health effects and it can be a, you know, a major cause of um, ill health and disability in people uh, as we get older. Uh, so I really, really want to highlight how significant and serious it is but I also want people to realize, um, and I think this is one of my roles in, in kind of trying to communicate about this disease, is that it is something that we have a lot of strategies that we can use to, um, to either treat it in people who already have sarcopenia or prevent the development or at least slow down the development of sarcopenia um, in, in younger people. So in, in older people who have the condition, 
there are strategies to help um, ameliorate, ameliorate or improve it. Um, and then in younger people, there's also things that we know that we can use to, to reduce its um, development as we get older. So uh, uh, we, we can just uh, slow down the progression rate or is there a way that maybe we can just uh, stop it for good? Well, so that, that's very uh, an interesting uh, question and, uh, and it's something that I'm not sure we, we know the answer to yet. One thing that we know is that people who are lifelong exercisers um, and um, I'm, I'm going to talk about exercise a lot because exercise is probably one of the most effective ways of dealing with sarcopenia. We know that people who are lifelong exercisers who perform some sort of exercise regularly over their life, particularly um, masters level athletes and people who compete in uh, strength sports, things like weightlifting, they tend to have higher levels of muscle mass and muscle function and strength um, as they get older. Now, they do not have the same levels of muscle ma mass and strength as a younger person. So while we may not be able to completely eliminate uh, muscle loss as we age, we can significantly uh, retard its development. Um, and I, I think we can retard its development to an extent where its, its effects are considerably lower than if, if it had been left untreated. That, uh, that is very interesting and also uh, uh, leaves a lot of space for future research. And I really hope that we can find, uh, through different studies, uh, an answer to the question before. But uh, you mentioned, uh, let's say, strength training as an example. Are there any particular sports that uh, might uh, not uh, help with the slowing uh, of the progression rate of sarcopenia? Or should we just focus on uh, sports that uh, help us uh, in our hypertrophy process? How, how do you see this uh, question? So, so it's quite interesting. So some of these uh, studies that they've done on lifelong athletes, they've actually separated them into... Um, let's say sedentary people who, who've done nothing, uh, people who've competed in strength sports, specifically weightlifting, and then people who have competed in endurance sports, so marathon runners. And what they've seen is that um, both groups, both, both uh, exercise groups, the marathoners and the, um, the weightlifters, have much better muscle function and size compared to the sedentary people. So that's, and that's fairly, you know, that's obviously going to happen. Uh, but another thing that's interesting is that obviously the muscle uh, size and the muscle strength in the weightlifters is greater than that of the um, of the marathon runners. Uh, their quality, the muscle quality in both groups is good. And um, by muscle quality, I'm talking about things like muscle strength, muscle function, um, and the lack of uh, what we call uh, adipose tissue infiltration. So that's when fat actually accumulates in muscles. And this is something people don't don't realize. But so we often talk about muscle size. Um, one thing that we need to consider as well is, is muscle quality, because you could have two muscles that are the same size. But if one muscle has a lot of fat uh, deposited within the muscle, it's not as high quality. It's not as strong. Um, and metabolically, it's not as effective for kind of preventing a lot of the metabolic conditions like diabetes and heart disease as we get older. Um, but yeah, so back to the original question, um, any type of exercise is absolutely fantastic. And I would encourage people to find a type of exercise that they enjoy and that they love and that they're going to do regularly, because there's, there's nothing more important than finding something that you enjoy because you're more likely to do it. Um, but if we talk about specifics, Yes, strength training. So any kind of um, exercise that uh, induces a significant hypertrophic response. So if we think, ab think about lifting weights, uh, something like that is going to have a much better effect at increasing muscle mass um, in, in both uh, younger people and older people. So if uh, let's, let's say, for example, I go to my grandma and I tell her, hey, grandma, uh, you can uh, prevent the sarcopenia progression rate by lifting weights. Uh, is there a benefit if uh, older people uh, take up resistance training? Like, do they benefit or it might just uh, hurt them a little bit more? Well, so, so that's, that's a very, very interesting question. So, um, and I suppose one thing I'd say to people is if you look at your grandmother and you say to her, hey, granny, uh, do you want to start lifting weights with me? I'm going to go three times a week. 
she's pro- she, she's probably going to look at you and say, uh, no, thank you. I'd rather stay in my, my rocking chair. Um, so one thing that we need to consider there is that older people are not necessarily going to want to do resistance exercise. So you're going to have to find some other form of regular exercise that they can do um, initially. Uh, if, if, they, if you can encourage them and you can convince them to do resistance exercise, fantastic. Um, but the most important thing is getting them moving. And that might be something like, you know, okay, granny, we're going to get you to walk around the house more regularly because a lot of older people, one of the main reasons for sarcopenia in the first place is lack of physical activity. Poor diet plays a role um, and other conditions play a role as well, but it's the lack of movement and the lack of physical activity, which is a lack of stimulus for muscle growth that is the major cause of sarcopenia. So just getting older people to walk more can be beneficial. Getting, saying to your granny, okay, how about you climb up and down the stairs as long as it's safe for her, you know, obviously. Um, you know, getting her to do that. Uh, encouraging uh, older people to be in their garden more, do some more garden work, to do more chores if they can. Just spend more time moving is fantastic. Um, and then if we go back to the original question, there is... Uh, or there is quite a bit of research in older people because, like I said, sarcopenia is, it's, people are realizing how important a condition it is. Um, in older populations where they trial uh, resistance exercise programs with older people. Now, the, they do notice gains in lean muscle mass. Um, now, they're not huge gains. You know, you're probably not going to be turning your grandmother into Arnold Schwarzenegger or anything like that. Uh, but you... There, there, there is a significant increase in muscle mass over time, um, and particularly when you give them longer amounts of time, so more than three months, we notice uh, increases in muscle mass. Um, and there's also a significant increase in muscle strength. And just to talk about strength, so one thing that happens when we lose muscle is we lose strength as well. And that this is actually a separate condition, which is called dynapenia, um, which is the loss of muscle strength as we get older. And According to the research at the moment, we actually think that dynapenia is probably a lot more uh, significant a risk factor for other conditions. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a more significant risk factor than sarcopenia alone, um, because if you think about it, um, a loss of muscle strength is also indicative of poor muscle quality. Um, it also stops people from exercising more if their if their muscles aren't very strong. They're less likely to exercise if their muscles aren't very very strong. Um, they are, uh, they're not going to uh, want to perform other, uh, they're not going to be able to perform daily tasks, like simple daily tasks. And that can lead to, you know, problems with frailty as well. Um, so resistance exercise does seem to help considerably with improving muscle function as well, which is very, very important um, in these older populations. Um, and like I said, it's ideal if you can get somebody to lift weights but it's probably not realistic in all situations. So I think it's important for people to, to realize that you're probably not going to get granny to be doing a, a five by five, three days a week. Um, so it might be better just to kind of, to start where she is and just get her walking a little bit more regularly and go from there. So, uh, you know how doctors usually say like, uh, eat less, move more. So this say might go well with the move more part, especially for older people who might get a little bit help preventing sarcopenia. Uh, I guess it's very interesting to, that this uh, part of losing strength that you just presented, uh, it represents a, a more concerning factor, and I totally agree. And uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, poor nutrition also plays uh, an important part in uh, the sarcopenic, uh, sarcopenia development. Uh, how do you feel about uh, about that how do you define poor nutrition i mean I, me as a med student in uh in my five years i know it's not much but i uh, only had like one week of nutrition and it was related to, to diabetes so i think nutrition is a very important part especially when we talk about preventing diseases and also when treating them how do you feel the the nutrition part for sarcopenia and the loss of strength might have a, an impact so so that's that's a good question um so like i said one of the 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 reasons why sarcopenia develops in the first place is because of uh, a lack of uh exercise uh, but another major reason for sarcopenia is something called anabolic resistance and anabolic resistance basically means that 
as people get older, their sensitivity to uh, anabolic stimuli, so things like things that make your muscles grow, so that's exercise, um, uh, that can be food, you know, the intake of protein. Our anabolic, uh, our sensitivity to those uh, stimuli decreases. So that means we need a greater stimuli to increase muscle mass. So obviously that applies to exercise, we need a little bit more, but it also applies to protein. And one of the interesting things is that we've found that, or researchers have found that um, higher doses of protein are actually necessary for older people to develop, uh, to help develop muscle and to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis or muscle growth over time. So for example, uh, we have research that shows that um, uh, younger people, if you give younger people a dose of maybe 20 grams of whey, you can uh, stimulate uh, muscle protein synthesis quite you know, robustly. But if you give that same dose to an older person, it doesn't stimulate muscle protein synthesis as much as it could. And what we found is that it potentially needs twice that dose, so up to 40 grams of protein per meal um, uh, to stimulate that muscle protein synthesis. So that's something that's really, really important to take into account, um, especially when we consider, you know, um, I, I was recently looking at some data on uh, protein intake uh, in the UK and in older populations. And one, the daily protein intake is quite low in older populations. But what's also very interesting is it's quite skewed. So um, that protein, the majority of it tends to be taken with the evening meal, uh, some of it lunch, and then at breakfast, virtually nothing. So if we're talking about how can we help older people to increase their protein intake, we could say to them, okay, well, we need to increase it, you know, relatively um, uh, consistently throughout each meal uh, so that we've got enough protein at each meal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So that could be, like I said, up to 40 grams. The problem with that is 40 grams is a big dose of protein. So it may not be necessarily easy for older people to take it in, especially when we consider protein as a very uh, satiating macronutrient. So when, when we eat protein, it usually suppresses appetite and stops us from wanting to eat more. So that's a problem with older people because there we, we know that older people's appetites tend to decline as well. Um, so we have to look at ways that we can we can kind of increase protein without making major changes to some somebody's diet. So that might be as simple as, you know, uh, telling a, 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 an older person to, you know, eat their normal breakfast and on top of that have uh, a high protein yogurt, for example, or telling them at lunch, make sure they have a certain amount of lean meat or um uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people in, in the fitness industry, they're, they're very quick to say, okay, let's just give them a protein shake. You know, older people might not necessarily want to try a protein, protein shake just because it's something that they're not used to. So you have to find things that they are used to. And like, you know, yogurt, and that's one thing that we use in our own research, high protein yogurts. Everybody has tried the yogurts. Most people like yogurt. Um, and you can get really, really high protein yogurts that are quite low in calories that people can eat on top of their regular diet to supplement their protein. And that can be a, a really kind of beneficial way to, to up that protein, uh, that daily protein intake. So it's not only about uh, upping the protein intake, but we should also aim for uh, quality protein. Very, very true, yeah. Um, and so I really, really like to focus on dairy protein uh, because it is, you know, it, it's the highest quality protein that you can get. And especially nowadays, it's quite easy to get really, really good dairy uh, products. Um, so there's plenty of things like quark and uh, skier, um, cottage cheese, uh, and lots and lots of different protein products uh, that are dairy-based that are available right now. And they're very, very high in quality. And that higher quality protein, which is usually, it's, it's high in quality because it tends to be high in leucine and other amino acids, essential amino acids. Um, and that tends to stimulate muscle protein synthesis quite well. So I, I, I like to focus on dairy, but it's not essential. Um, uh, the one thing I would say is that with vegetarians or vegans, um, just because protein quality can be a little bit lower, that's when things like supplementation with, um, with uh, you know, a leucine supplement might be beneficial or increasing protein doses even greater, because even if protein quality is not great, if you increase the quantity, you can still stimulate uh, muscle protein synthesis quite robustly. What about the, the vegan mixed protein? Uh, I think I've seen one that uh, treated this subject like they said something like this. 
we use uh, rice protein and pea protein. I don't, I don't remember if that's what they said. But the main point was that uh, the amino acids from uh, rice were like uh, complementary with the amino acids from pea. And in this way, they said they created a, a complete protein shake. So uh, is that a solution to, to vegetarians, for example? It is a potential solution. Um, what I would say as well that is, while protein complementarity is is a you know a, a valid uh, concept, one thing to bear in mind uh, will be the quantity as well, um, because like I said, leucine, uh, which I mentioned earlier, that amino acid, uh, we we know that is is it seems to be responsible for stimulating the muscle protein synthesis response and and dairy protein is really really high in leucine so that's why it's it's really good at stimulating muscle growth um so i would say if you can use complementary proteins like rice and pea fantastic um but check uh and and again i'm saying check um this is more for professionals in the area um you know check the leucine content uh and you'd want to see it at potentially 2.5 to 3.5 grams of leucine per meal per serving and I'm not sure if just a regular protein serving uh, supplement is going to have that. And it might warrant using a leucine supplement on top of the, uh, the, the actual uh, protein supplement too, just to make sure that people are getting, uh, are stimulating protein synthesis enough. Um, and failing that, eating more protein is, is usually, um, it's, eating more pro- protein is rarely a bad thing, um, except in certain cases. But uh, for the general population, I think it's a, it's a good uh, policy to have. I think uh, what you just uh, talked about represent, uh, represents a very good uh, piece of advice for uh, everyone, not only for sarcopenia patients. As uh, you, I, I am sure you remember that uh, the recommendation for the minimum optimum the, for the minimum uh, intake of protein was something like uh, 0.8 grams per uh, body weight, and uh, I've seen That's some right. mixed evidence regarding this uh, number and they they actually actually the researchers just said that they might have uh, miscalculated and it should be around one gram of protein per body weight so maybe if this new recommendation comes up maybe the sarcopenia uh, rate will uh, fall down or maybe it will drop quite uh, a bit I, I don't know but i i thought it was interesting to share no, that's, that's, a, that's a really, really good point. Um, actually, I think in the UK, the, the cutoff is 0.78 grams, so 0.8, yeah. Um, the only problem with that is that recommendation is there to prevent something called protein malnutrition. And, you know, so uh, I often say if you've ever seen an image of, uh, and you don't see these anymore because the images aren't used, but in the past, uh, we would often see charities advertising using images of starving children, and we would see starving children with large pot bellies. And uh, that pot belly is actually a, a symptom of a disease known as kwashiorkor, uh, which is a, prote- a form of protein malnutrition, where people aren't getting, these children aren't getting enough protein in their diet, and they're getting severe edema, so water swelling in and around their stomach and, and other parts of their body. Um, and that's what that protein recommendation of 0.8 grams is for, it's to prevent that condition from happening. So it, it, it's not considered, that, that's not a recommendation for optimal health. That's a condition to stop people from getting sick. Um, and there's actually quite a bit of research now that's showing that in older populations in particular, 1.2 grams of protein uh, per kilogram of body weight per day uh, is a good recommendation. And if you divide that by three, that, that works out at 0.4 grams per kilogram per body weight uh, per meal. And I think that is a uh, probably a good uh, uh, recommendation for people. But the big thing is, remember, we need to turn this into a recommendation that the older population can use. So saying, saying to your granny, okay, gran, you need to have 0.4 grams per kilogram body weight of uh, protein at every meal. See you later. Uh, that's probably not going to be effective. So translating it into, you know, food sources, like saying, okay, have, um, you know, like a, a, a small chicken breast with lunch or have, you know, a, a large serving of, uh, Greek yogurt for, for lunch, things like that. We need to be able to translate it into a, a more uh, a user-friendly uh, food recommendation. Yeah, yeah, of course. We, we should adapt uh, to our client, let's say like this. Absolutely. Yeah. And regarding the, the protein part, yeah, you, you said it perfectly. It's the minimum 
uh, recommended dose to prevent uh, protein malnutrition. I totally agree, but uh, it's not the the optimum one, in my opinion. Absolutely. So we just uh, transitioned from uh, working out and uh, uh, taking my granny to the gym to to learning uh, learning uh, teaching her how to, to diet. And uh, this brings me to, to our next subject that I would like to bring up. So how do you see the, the dieting process? Like you just mentioned that uh, protein is a very satiating uh, macronutrient. It also, we know that it also has a very, uh, not a very, but a bigger uh, thermogenic effect. So it helps us burn uh, more uh, calories. And uh, if we overeat something, that should be protein. But uh, how do you see the, the full complex of dieting? Uh, do you believe that uh, someone who wants to lose weight can lose weight from a particular uh, spot in, in their body? So from a particular spot in their body, so like spot reduction in, in, in weight loss, uh, that's, <laughs> that's often considered the, the holy grail when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, to dieting because you, you'll have people saying, oh yeah, I tend to... I tend to gain weight here around my, you know, it'll be wherever on that person, around their butt or around their chest or around their legs. Um, they say, what can I do or what exercise can I do? And the truth is there's no evidence at all to suggest that we can spot reduce body fat. Um, unfortunately, I think we need to think of our body, our body's fat reserves as being a, a swimming pool. And if we want to reduce that, um, the amount of body fat from a certain region, we're going to have to lose body fat in general from our whole body fat reserve. So it's just, you know, diet and exercise consistently to lose that body fat is, is what people need. Um, and it, that's not what some people want to hear, unfortunately, um, because a, a lot of people, you know, say like, oh, I, I tend to hold on to body, you know, to fat around a certain part of my body. And the truth is, if you hold on to body fat in a certain region, and that can be, you know, that's a very, very individual thing. It's, it's genetic, um, it's hormonal. Uh, so, you know, women have different body fat distribution, um, uh, different populations have different body fat distributions, but you're going to hold on to that until, you know, you lose a significant amount of body fat. So for example, um, I have one client and they, uh, it's a, a male client who tends to hold on to body fat around his chest. And he finds it very, very uh, uncomfortable. And he can get very, very lean, um, like as in having abdominals showing, but he can still have a little bit of uh, adipose tissue around his, his chest. Um, and he, if he wants to get rid of that, he just needs to keep dieting, unfortunately. And some people are going to be like that. You know, you, people have to kind of accept their, their body type, so to speak. Um, and realize that if they want to lose body fat, they're going to be, it's a long game that they're going to need to play to, uh, to lose it if, if that's what they want to do. But um, do you think that uh, uh, fat from a particular spot can influence, I don't know, the, the quality of life? Like uh, you, you mentioned that client who has fat uh, around his chest. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe if he goes to a doctor and the, the doctor doesn't know much about him, uh, maybe the doctor will say he has uh, gynecomastia. So, uh, do you think there, there, the fat that is stored in different parts of our body plays a role in uh, the epidemiology of diseases? Uh, absolutely, um, and I think this is this is a, an absolutely fascinating area of uh, science, and that's um, the science of kind of fat distribution and body composition. Um, and so obviously we've spoken about sarcopenia, which is one aspect of that because muscle mass is important. Fat mass is also important. And on top of fat mass, fat distribution seems to be very, very important for some conditions. So we know that um, people who tend to have higher levels of adiposity also tend to have higher risk of uh, conditions. And I'm just going to say things like um, uh, metabolic syndrome. So that would be things like... Uh, uh, poor blood lipids, so elevated cholesterol, uh, lower HDL, high triglycerides. Uh, they tend to have higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of cardiovascular disease, higher blood pressure. But we also see that within uh, people who have similar body fat, total body fat amounts, that the distribution of the body fat can be significant. So if, if we simplify things and we look in, in, in two different ways of distributing body fat, we have the android uh, body fat distribution, which is the, the male 
uh, body fat distribution. So if we think of that, it's body fat distributed around the stomach. Okay, uh, so we'd call that um, uh, central adiposity. And then we have the gynoid fat distribution, which is the female type. And that's where you have fat distribution more around the, the buttocks and around the thighs. Okay, so kind of a, uh, some people call them pears and apples. So pear being the female shape and the apple being the male shape. We know that that android fat distribution is significantly uh, associated with um, a number of metabolic conditions like cardiovascular disease and heart disease, uh, and diabetes. Um, and it, it's true, men tend to suffer more from those conditions. Um, and women's, the hormonal patterns that cause women to distribute fat differently seem to protect them from a lot of these chronic conditions, at least until menopause. Um, and then at menopause, if women are receiving HRT, they also seem to be protected. But if they're not receiving HRT, their risk of heart disease increases because they're, for a lot of women at menopause, uh, body fat distribution changes and it switches to a more abdominal type of uh, body fat distribution. So abdominal body fat distribution is one. And another one is visceral adipo um, adiposity, which is um, where we store fat tissue around and within our organs. So that could be um, around, our, uh, around our heart, um, around our intestines, it can be around and within the liver and within the, the pancreas. And just to clarify uh, on what I mentioned earlier, uh, so I was talking about HRT. So HRT is hormone replacement therapy. Um, and in, in women who go through menopause, there's a sudden decline in estrogen levels. And HRT is usually, uh, it's, a, it's a replace, replacing that estrogen and sometimes replacing progesterone that's lost. Um, and that uh, has been shown to be very, very beneficial for reducing or even preventing some of the symptoms of menopause, which may be quite significant for, for older women. Um, so that's one thing that um, it, it's a kind of a, a serious indicator of, uh, uh, of how important fat distribution is. And then if we talk about another type of fat distribution, which is visceral fat, and visceral fat is the type of fat that we have around and within organs. So uh, around our abdominal cavity, around our liver, around our heart, and even within our liver and within our pancreas, we know that higher levels of visceral fat, higher levels of visceral adiposity can cause serious um, metabolic issues so, and can seriously increase somebody's risk of heart disease and diabetes. Um, particularly, uh, so liver fat is associated with you know, higher increases in uh, things like triglycerides and then high uh, increases in uh, pancreatic fat are often associated with diabetes. And the interesting thing is, um, we do know that different individuals are able to store different amount of fat um, before they actually have metabolic problems. So for example, one thing that's interesting is in, uh, if we look at the Indian subcontinent, continent, so places like um, India, Pakistan, people from those regions genetically they seem to develop uh, a lot of problems such as uh, cardiovascular disease or diabetes at a much lower uh, body weight but that seems to be because they actually store body fat uh, they actually tend to store uh, body fat viscerally uh, a lot more readily than people from say uh, european populations who can tend to gain quite a lot of weight before they see some of those conditions now that's a very very it's a very, very individual thing. So even within populations, some people will be able to continue gaining body fat and, and potentially uh, have very, very few side effects, whereas other people um, can have relatively lower levels of body fat. But because it tends to be distributed viscerally um, or um, even within the abdominal region, they tend to have significant health effects. So that's something that's really, really interesting. And, and there's more and more research coming out on uh, the different effects of different uh, body fat depots and the way we store body fat. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, area of research. Oh, that is very interesting. I just, uh, if I could, I, I will, actually, I will, I'm taking notes because uh, it will help me in my, uh, my career as a doctor. And <laughs> I have like a question with multiple questions. So sure. the first one is, uh, if we lose fat from those specific areas correlated with the disease you mentioned, 
Is this a statistically significant reduction of risk? Yeah, so uh, that, that, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, so one of the good things to know is uh, that when we do lose fat, um, and that can be from exercise or from diet, it tends to be lost from visceral areas first. And, and the reason for that is, so when, when we gain weight, um, obviously we tend to store weight initially uh, under our skin in what we call subcutaneous fat, so fat just underneath the skin. But our body can only store so much in that region. And everybody has a different kind of point at which beyond that point, we start to store fat in what we call ectopic regions. So regions where, you know, fat shouldn't be stored. So and that could be viscerally or it can be even it can be in other organs as well. Um, so beyond that point, we start to store fat there. But the good point of that is, is that when we lose weight, that's the first area. So those visceral regions are some of the first areas where body fat is lost for. So that's why weight loss can be so beneficial for um, people who are suffering from things like uh, like diabetes or heart disease. Um, and it, it's it's quite interesting that if you, if you look at somebody, again, who I mentioned, somebody who may not be particularly overweight, but they've got a poor body fat distribution, um, even if you say this person doesn't have a huge amount of weight to, loss, to lose, if they can still lose some body fat, some of that will be lost from visceral areas and they will see an improvement in whatever symptoms they're experiencing. So basically, that's why uh, the stubborn fat from our belly is the last one to go. <laughs> well, it, 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 it can be. Um, and like, again, it, it does, I think with subcutaneous fat, it's, 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 a lot more, it's a lot more different. But if we're talking about visceral fat, that tends to be the first one to go. But if, if you're storing a lot of uh, subcutaneous fat around the belly, that may be the last one to go indeed, yeah. Uh, I get this question about uh, how can I lose visceral fat on, uh, on our Instagram page? And uh, I wanted to ask you, because you just presented the answer that weight loss is uh, the, the perfect way. But is there a danger when you lose too much visceral fat? Uh, and I, I can give an example, the guys from Mr. Olympia. Uh, okay, so yeah, that's that's quite an extreme example, right? So obviously, visceral fat, like and fat around our organs, does have an absolutely essential function. So fat around our organs is there for a protective role, um, and, and we need to to be aware of that as well. Uh, it's when we have excess fat in those regions that it causes issues. Now, if we're talking about guys like Mr. Olympia, those are guys who are getting down to absolutely ridiculously low levels of body fat and doing everything they can to get down there. And I will, you know, be the first to say that getting to those levels of leanness is not healthy, um, you know. And, and I, I don't think there's anybody who would uh, who would uh, say that I'm wrong with that statement. But getting to such low levels of body body fat is potentially bad. Um, losing body weight in general and getting to a healthier body weight for the ind individual, whatever that healthier body weight is, um, I think is really important. Um, and while it's easy to say, you know, just weight loss is, is the only way to do it. We do know that you can reduce um, visceral fat and uh, without even losing weight if somebody is, one, exercising, and two, if they improve their diet quality and they kind of switch to, for example, a, a Mediterranean-style diet, which is high in fruit and vegetables, high in fibers, um, uh, low in saturated fat, and higher in monounsaturated and some polysaturated fats. We know that even without weight loss, um, in those cases, people can also reduce their amount of visceral fat and improve their health markers as well. And then if you combine both of those, so exercise, a better quality diet and weight loss, then you're going to see even, you know, uh, even greater cumulative effects of, uh, of that intervention. And uh, does it matter the, the type of exercise? Like, uh, for example, when, uh, when I have some overweight friends that ask me for advice, I usually tell them, don't run. It might hurt your joints. Just, uh, I don't know, go cycling. So uh, does it matter the, the type of exercise regardless health? I just mean for this weight loss process, aerobic versus anaerobic. So, so that, that's a good question. I would say that for long-term weight maintenance, I think... Uh, a combination of both is really, really good. Okay, so people often want to say which one is better, aerobic or resistance exercise, because they want to know one or the other. And I would say a combination of both is great. Um, there was a recent study that came out looking at visceral fat, and it was, uh, it was um, looking at 
uh, two groups, one that did resistance exercise and one that did aerobic exercise. And they found that actually the aerobic exercise group reduced visceral fat a little more than the resistance exercise. But the important thing is that both groups reduced visceral fat. Um, I think from a long-term perspective of health maintenance and weight maintenance, um, combining both is important because we know that maintaining a certain level of muscle mass is important for helping people to maintain weight loss over time. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. Like one of them is, is appetite regulation seems to be linked to muscle mass as well. Um, and we know that regular exercisers tend to maintain uh, body weight um, better than people who don't exercise. So uh, I would incorporate any type of exercise somebody can do as long as they can do it safely. Like, and you gave a very good example there of somebody who may, be consider, may have considerable levels of overweight and running for them would not be a good option. Like you said, it could be painful on their joints. But doing something like um, water aerobics or swimming or biking, like you said, might be a perfectly good option. Thanks for clearing that up. And um, regarding the, the fat that uh, our body stores, do you think that uh, this fat can uh, keep our body in a constant state of inflammation? Or is there any link with uh, this uh, inflammation markers and the fat? Yeah, so and that's another good question. And and this is something that it's it's something that's a little bit controversial, though, though it shouldn't be controversial. Um, we know that higher levels of body fat are associated with higher levels of uh, chronic, uh, low, basically low level inflammation is what we call it. So when somebody is storing a lot of body fat, we get something which is called adipose tissue dysfunction. Okay, so above a certain point, if somebody stores a lot of body fat, uh, what happens is that there is a change in the structure of adipose tissue. Um, instead of uh, the fat cells increasing in number, we get fat cells increasing in size. So we don't get hyperplasia, we get hypertrophy of fat cells. And when fat cells grow in size and when fat tissue grows in size, it tends to have um, uh, lower levels of vascularization. So that means there's lower levels of blood vessels getting into that fat. With those lower levels of blood fat, uh, blood levels, um, there tends to be an increase in, fl in inflammation which recruits uh, immune cells, which go to the region and stimulate further inflammation. So you've got this constant state of inflammation within the body um, that circulates to other levels of uh, other areas of the body. And that's one of the reasons that um, obesity can be associated with uh, things like, for example, insulin resistance, because we know that uh, the low level inflammatory state from obesity can contribute to um, uh, insulin insensitivity and ins insulin resistance, basically. So that's one of the conditions. It can also contribute to heart disease. It, it can also contribute to higher levels of uh, blood pressure as well um, because of these higher levels of inflammation uh, in the adipose tissue. And again, this is something that can be reduced through you know, diet and exercise strategies uh, and the reduction in, um, uh, in body fat stores. Uh, and failing a reduction of body fat stores, just improvements in diet and exercise alone, even if somebody doesn't lose weight, they're still going to, to show benefits. But even bigger benefits tend to come with, with the weight loss as well, because you don't have that adipose tissue dysfunction anymore. That's, uh, that's very interesting. I think uh, our followers will have lots of stuff to learn uh, from uh, your expertise. And uh, uh, I would like to address uh, uh, as a final question, let's say a more personal one. How do you see the, the future of the human race? Do you see a population full of chronic diseases and uh, obesity and uh, chronic states? Or do you see an improvement in uh, lifestyle and uh, thus in uh, health? <laughs> that, that is a... Uh... That is a very, very big uh, question. Um, and it's a more, he, here's the thing, okay? I, I, it's more of a personal. Say that again? Like, what's, your, what's your opinion on this? It's, you don't have to. Yeah. No, uh, no I, I, I get you. Um, so here's the thing. I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist when it comes to, to th things like this. Um, and, but I think that things are probably going to get worse from a public health perspective in that I, you know, levels of obesity are continuing to rise um, and associated conditions that are associated with obesity are continuing to rise as well. 
Um, and I think we're going to see a, an increase in lifestyle disease, lifestyle disease to a point where people will start to take note. And not so much people, but governments will start to take note because I think at this point, it's going to be a, a very, very large-scale government-style intervention uh, that's going to be necessary to, to bring about the societal changes, and we do need some changes in society um, and within our uh, our food networks as well um, to bring about changes in in how people eat and how people exercise. Um, because here's the thing: people are people are eating too much and exercising too little. That's that's the crux of the matter. Now, there's many reasons for that. It's it's a very very complicated issue. Um, but the way society is set up is a big contributor to that. And I think on an individual level, yes, we will have people who are able to fight against that. Like, you know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast, obviously, and people who, who are, are making big changes to their health. But for a lot of people, it's not so easy to make those changes. So we need some sort of government intervention, in my opinion, to make those changes uh, more likely to happen in a larger amount of the population um, and to make it more likely to happen. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm optimistic, but before the the good stuff, we will probably have to go through a uh, a little bit of a, a worse phase. Uh, I I think. Actually, it's happening right now with the people that uh, are uh, actually facing a, a chronic disease like diabetes. They 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 live a healthy, in a, actually not a very healthy lifestyle, but they believe it's healthy. And when they are diagnosed with diabetes, they are very surprised and they understand that they need to take action and they just start learning how to eat right and uh, everything and so on. So, uh, yeah, I personally agree with your opinion. I just wanted to see what do you think about it. And uh, uh, we've reached the, the end of our conversation. I really don't know when uh, the time passed. I absolutely loved our uh, talk. Uh, it was very informative. I also learned something. Awesome new today and uh, i would love to, to give you the opportunity to say uh, where people can find you and maybe contact you for uh, i don't know collaboration or uh, just to see the great info that you post oh thank you very much um so yeah uh, i i think I'm, I'm most active on instagram at the moment um and my instagram account is be more nutrition so that's b underscore more underscore nutrition um, I've got a Facebook page, which is Be More Nutrition as well, uh, if you search that. And then I've got a website, which is BeMoreNutrition.com. Um, but like I said, if somebody wants to drop me a message on Instagram, I'm always happy to talk, um, uh, always happy to have a chat with people and when I can help out and give any advice that I can, if I can. Um, so yeah, and, and just thanks very, very much for the opportunity to speak today. It was an honor and uh, I hope you will uh, accept my invitation maybe in a, for a future talk about different uh, topics but uh, just as interesting as uh, the ones we hit today i'd be more than happy to thank you thank you again this brings us to the final part of our episode i hope you enjoyed our talk with richie and uh, i really hope to see you again at our next episode bye